This is the Trying Again podcast, a story of miscarriage. I'm Rachel Smith. If you're listening to this for the first time, you may want to go back to episode one to get the full story, else some of this might not make any sense. The conversations in this episode will be frank. It's so silenced and, and shunned away the, the kind of physical side of it as well, that, that women feel, you know, we're made to feel ashamed about having periods, for, good, for goodness sakes. And they may be difficult but they are needed. Generally, it's that sudden loss of symptoms um, that, that we worry about. Personally, and ironically, I try not to use the phrase trying again when Lee and I talk about trying again. I've said for years, the pressure that some couples put on themselves to try again, between ovulation apps, sex on specific dates, personal and family expectations, the waiting to see if you've caught, the disappointment when you don't, miscarriage and all the trauma and pain aside, thinking about trying again is stressful. It got me thinking also about how much I have changed as a person since my miscarriages. And that's what I want to discuss now, our bodies. Us, as women, we have amazing bodies. No matter what the shape, we are made up of sal wonder. Even those of us who've experienced a loss or feel broken inside. I know I felt broken, like my body isn't working properly, like I'm not really a woman. It's a cruel thing to think, and those thoughts are damaging. I know this but I still feel it. So I thought this is something I need to explore a little. For those who've listened to episode five, I'm gonna take a similar approach, tackling this topic like an onion, seeing what layers I can take off. To help me unravel this topic, I'm joined on this episode by Julia Bueno. I am a psychotherapist working in London and I have a specialist interest in working with women and couples um, after pregnancy loss or struggling with their fertility. Julia was a support worker for the Miscarriage Association and is the author of the book, The Brink of Being. I'm also joined by Kate Marsh. I'm the midwifery manager at Tommy's. I am a practising midwife and a health visitor also. Tommy's is a UK charity that funds research into miscarriage, stillbirth and premature birth and provides pregnancy health information to parents. I figured between us we can find some truth and answers. The human body is a marvellous thing, but it also, um, during pregnancy, there's so many surprises and hormones can do all sorts to your body. Um, So there are a lot of unexpected surprises. And, you know, at at Tommy's, we get um, a lot of emails of uh, women being really unsure about their symptoms. You know, some people get really bad sickness, others don't get any at all. Um, But actually, symptoms can vary hugely in early pregnancy. And for each pregnancy as well so for some women in their first pregnancy they might have had everything under the sun and then the next pregnancy the symptoms may not be the same at all may be really reduced not really recognizable at all so it's really quite unpredictable um and looking at you know a loss of symptoms again we get a lot of questions about one day my boobs are really sore and then the next day they weren't at all and you know when should I worry and actually generally it's that sudden loss of symptoms um, that that we worry about Um, and again some spotting or bleeding in early pregnancy isn't uncommon Um, and a lot of the time it can be a sort of early implantation bleeding Um, obviously that can look really worrying sometimes but most of the time bleeding doesn't necessarily mean a loss um, but we always say you need to get bleeding checked out if you have it at any stage in your pregnancy so it can be quite an uncertain time and also have quite a big effect on your emotional well-being as well and and that 
isolation and not always talking to people um, can be quite difficult. So so when you're in those 12 weeks and, and things are starting to change, how are we expected to cope with that? I think, you know, for everybody it is different. Some people are more open. Um, so they might have a chat with their friend, have a chat with their mum people that have been pregnant before is this normal um there's a lot of googling that goes on i think um and i would always suggest to women to go and go straight to websites that are evidence-based um like nhs like tommy's um because i think sometimes straight googling um can bring up a lot of well all sorts really the internet is wonderful but it's also terrifying sometimes um yeah yeah that's it so it's sort of going straight to a reputable website and having a look at the information but actually if you're ever in doubt then it is important to be able to talk to somebody it's better to do that than to sit at home worrying because it can be a really anxious time one thing that i come across a lot and have done in all the years of, of practice um, and unfortunately it's not it has changed a bit but it does still go on is that I, I say to women to, you know, trust their wisdom. When we know our bodies. And as you say, you, you know, when there's a sort of sudden change, I, I speak to so many women who just say, I knew it. I knew that. I, and, and it might be whoever who might just say, no, no, it's nothing. I hear lots of stories of, of women and couples being, um, just, just not properly listened to. You're absolutely right. You know, don't sit at home and worry, but it might mean stamping your feet a bit and being a squeaky wheel and just, just to trust your hunch. That's such a common thread in the experiences I hear. Yeah, no, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And sometimes it's not easy to pick up the phone for whatever reason. As a midwife, if a woman says to me, I just really feel like something's not wrong, it it really sends me goosebumpily because I'm like, oh, goodness. Um, Because I just think that is such a telling thing for a woman to say. And the other thing, I'm so glad that you... um, kind of mentioned about pregnancies being different I mean I, I had five pregnancies and every single one was very different and again if you've had a if you're pregnant after a, a previous loss mm-hmm. um, and as you say you know one one pregnancy you're yakking all the time you're feeling terrible it it can be really really nerve-wracking if your second pregnancy doesn't follow that that trajectory mm-hmm. and it's it's you know really reassuring to hear that you know pregnancies can be different so yeah just to know that that it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean um that you know that, that that it's going to unfold unhappily but 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 of course don't you know get advice but just also be aware yeah. that not every pregnancy is the same i think that's a lot of people don't know that they just expect them to, to yeah to map out the same way how would somebody like me go in and and stamp my feet and be able to say stuff if i'm not too sure what's wrong that's okay. I think you don't need to know the jargon. You don't need to know the language. Mm-hmm. It's about um, finding a way to just say what how you're feeling. And you can use whatever words you want, really, within reason. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's how you express yourself. You know, we're all humans. We all do that in a different way. That's human nature. And it doesn't matter if you don't know quite what words to use. Um, sometimes all it is is I just really just don't feel like something's right I'm really worried I'm really concerned 
and that can be enough. Um, it doesn't matter that you don't know the language. It doesn't matter that you can't really put your finger on exactly what's wrong. Um, you know, as long as you are asking for that help. Um, and, you know, the, the more that you can say, the better. But, you know, it can be a really emotive time. And sometimes words can escape. Um, if you're worried about going to an appointment, I always suggest either you can write down what you want to say before you go, because sometimes when you get in there, your mind can just go blank and it can be quite emotive and you don't feel like you've done yourself justice coming across. So sometimes it's easier to write down what you want to say. And again, or you can record it on your phone, you know, whatever you'd rather do. And when you're there, write down what, you know, the doctor or the nurse or the midwife is saying to you as well, because then it's, it's quite easy to forget the conversation that you've had or what's been agreed or what's been said so then you can come away and sort of reflect on it and have a look at it and see you know am I happy with that care am I clear with that care plan as to what's going on and don't worry if you're not clear or if you're a bit confused um, again just call back or call the early pregnancy unit um, and just say I just want to clarify you know why this is happening because at the end of the day it's your body it's your care and it's your baby um, so, you know, as much as you're being an advocate for yourself as well, and care should be agreed and planned with you, it shouldn't be laid out and you told what to do. Um, you know, by the end of an appointment, you should feel happy with the care plan and, and really felt that you've had an informed discussion and understand what's going on. So in no way do you need to know the jargon. And if someone's speaking in jargon or say something that you don't understand, then just ask. Um, sometimes as a professional, we sort of witter away um, and kind of might not really realise that what we're saying isn't that clear. So just ask. And, you know, as a professional, we should be able to communicate clearly um and understandably for you know the people that we're supporting you know just hearing kate speak and it's just wonderful music to to my ears to hear sort of to say that that you know that jargon isn't isn't you know recognizing it isn't helpful and and the, i think this whole emotive issue about language around around pregnancy loss is due to the fact that um, when a woman becomes, uh, you know, steps through the kind of threshold of a hospital, she becomes historically so, and I know care is changing enormously now, but historically so, she becomes a patient and she steps into a medical paradigm. But of course, I've never spoken to a, a, a woman, um, a bereaved woman after a miscarriage who, who judges herself like that. That was a mum to be who is grieving her baby to be. So there's a sort of collision of, of cultures, if you like, of paradigms. And that's taken a while for medicine to catch up with. At least this is my experience as a, as a, a, a therapist over the years and support worker that women and couples have been really, really suffered a lot at the, the hands of that, not that language has hands at the kind of, um, impact of medicalized language around pregnancy loss. Now I know this is, this is changing and it's fantastic. I, it's, it's sort of changed almost beyond recognition since my first pregnancy lost 18 years ago, but, yeah. but not everywhere. And it still does happen where kind of language slips out. And one very, very typical thing is that most couples, uh, you know, particularly if they've got a mis miscarriage, they have a scan at 12 weeks. That's their baby that they're looking forward to seeing. And that's their baby that they've been had in their mind for weeks and weeks and weeks. Maybe they've been trying to conceive for years, but they're much loved baby. And to be, for it to be described as anything else in medicalized language, such as a sort of a fetus or a blighted ovum or a, these, all these sort of medicalized terms to, uh, is really, really upsetting. Um, and it really misses the experience. 
um, you know, I've spoken to women before who've had an early miscarriage and I've made reference to the baby and actually they re that didn't sit mm. too well with them yeah. because they wanted to kind of disassociate the mm. fact that they've they had they were pregnant and it was potentially a baby and then they they passed that baby and actually they didn't want me to use that term because they felt like it was you know too personal and actually they wanted to keep it quite matter of fact so I think you know if we get a lot of contacts of, of sort of friends or family saying I know someone who's had a miscarriage how can I support them and and I always suggest to use the language that the women mm and follow their lead then most of the time hopefully you know you can't go too far wrong and you're just reflecting back to them what they're saying and using the same language that they they want to use and the tricky one is which I have I have met couples where they each partner um relates to the baby very differently mm. so yeah the tuning in process has to be very nuanced if you're dealing with a couple yeah absolutely yeah how do you do that when you, you know if you're if you're not one of the couple involved you're a family or a friend how do you even start that conversation you know the most important thing if, if someone's looking to support someone who's been through miscarriage is to really recognize what that women that those parents what that family is going through um, and it's better to say something to recognize what has happened than to try and you know and it become the elephant in the room you know I think it's better to really just be open and honest and even if you're not sure what to say just say I'm not sure what to say but I recognize that this is really you know difficult sad time for you um, how can I support you and actually listening is just so important I think sometimes it's that human nature to feel like you want to say something or to feel like you need to make the situation better um, when actually it's just important to, to be there for that person to recognize what's happened what they're going through um, again you know use their language um, and and to listen and to be there for that person and you don't necessarily need to say too much you, you're not there to make it better um, you know it's for that woman that needs to that grieving process and to go through what they need to go through to be able to kind of process and, and cope with what's happened and find their way but as a friend or family member or someone supporting someone it, you're just there to support them and to hold their hand or give them a cup of tea or have a cry with them and, and, and do you know simple things like that just to let your friend know that you're there for them Two words that I use quite a lot is compassionate curiosity. Because mm -hmm. in my experience, when, you know, people are kind of at home and they've assimilated the, the process a bit, they've got a few, few days or weeks down the line and it can be a very kind of traumatic experience. Actually, people need to tell, tell a story of the miscarriage, which always, always in my experience, nearly always begins way back. Um, maybe even when you just think you, you met your partner and you decided to conceive. And the other thing that, and, and just to, just to, with that kind of curiosity, that exactly is case is just listening. Um, but, but if you feel up for it, it's not, this isn't a prescription, but if you can, I think it's really helpful to ask questions, to be curious, tell me about it. And what did it feel like? And what was your pregnancy like? And just as you would a, a pregnancy that ends in a live birth, you know, it, women have been pregnant and for lots of people feel that they kind of share that rite of passage, but people don't ask the questions of pregnancies that end up in loss that they would with pregnancies that end up in live birth. And a lot of women just like to share that. Uh, people also quite often want, not always, but a lot of women want to talk about the kind of visceral 
aspects of the loss and the birthing that they that they went through, whether it's even with an early miscarriage or a late miscarriage, mm-hmm. they do need to talk through that trauma. And if look, not not everybody wants to to hear that or ask about that. You know, I I don't want to hear about certain sort of things. You know things that that make me uncomfortable but if you do have the comfort and the courage to sit with your friend and say tell me about your the, the bleeding tell me about the pain how long did it go on for um i think a lot of people would really welcome that because it's it's so silenced and, and shunned away the the kind of physical side of it as well that that women feel you know we're made to feel shamed about having periods for good for goodness sake so I, if you can, I would really encourage you to to let them speak the, you know all the details. I and know. I think also kind of going on from that as well is particularly thinking about those who've maybe experienced a late miscarriage. A lot yeah. of you know a lot of what we talk about obviously is about early miscarriage, but for those who experience maybe a later miscarriage or an, uh, you know a stillborn baby, it's also yeah. asking about the baby, asking the baby's name, asking the gender, what did the baby look like, yeah. um, as as well is is really important. So definitely, if you're supporting someone who is later on kind of getting onto the second half of the pregnancy is to talk about the baby because you know that that woman is a mom and they they want their baby to be remembered as their child as their baby um and so it is it's having those conversations definitely i my um i write about this in my book my first loss was a twin um, pregnancy that i lost at 22 weeks and um absolutely i think to have one person ask me can i see the photos of your baby i think that would have made an an absolute categorical difference to my to my um to my grief and for someone exactly as Kate you just said to take a real interest in you know I went through birth um and you know that that doesn't and actually some some women you know even earlier gestations I'm sure you you know that too Kate that, that you know they will go through a very very painful long birthing process for yeah. even early loss um and might even hold their tiny baby who's not so developed in their hand and again if you feel comfortable enough to to ask about that I think that would be just so um supportive and so warming because that woman will have that baby in her mind's eye for the rest of her life to be able to share that but we tend to sort of well I think we've been socialized to to be fearful of this and to shy away from from this and there's some things that you've touched on which I do want to go into a bit more and it is grim but one thing I did want to ask is how much blood is too much blood and when should I worry in that situation? I think that, you know, bleeding is, is always quite scary. We're not used to seeing blood. And when we see blood, it, you know, it, it is quite worrying for most people. Um, and everybody copes physically with blood loss differently. Um, so it's about you are sort of how much is too much. So essentially, you know, if you are soaking through pads and you're having to change that hourly to hourly and soaking through pads, then um, you need to be telling somebody. Alternative, you may not be really soaking pads, but it's still effective. If you've got a low iron level or low HB in your bloods, then, um, you know, you can lose less blood, but it actually affects you more. Um, so if you're starting to feel dizzy, you feel tired, um, then or breathless, then you need to be telling somebody. So you need to be looking at sort of how you're feeling generally. Um, but you know, yeah, if you are soaking through pads, you know, pads, or you're sat in the seat and after an hour you've got a thick pad on and you're leaking, 
um, you know, particularly after a few days, then you need to be speaking to someone. The first few days, you know, there is often quite a lot of blood, um, depending on at what stage you had your loss and, and what's happened. Um, but, you know, if, if you've been discharged home, or you are at home and you're soaking through pads hourly, particularly if you start to feel dizzy, unwell, um, then you need to be telling somebody. When you do see the blood, what colour is a miscarriage, would you say? So the the most obvious is obviously that fresh red bleeding. You might have some clots as well. Um, and, um, you know, that that's the most obvious kind of bright colour blood. Now, um, some people might have what we call a missed miscarriage. So it might be that the baby's died. Um, but then unfortunately that woman has not found that out, that news until maybe they've had a scan a few weeks later. And you might get some brown spotting. Um, uh, to, you know, the, a, a small kind of lead up to more blood. Um, if a very early, what we call like a chemical pregnancy or early pregnancy, it might look more like a heavy period. So some people, if you have it, you know, you may have found out that you're pregnant and then a day or so later had what you feel was a heavy pregnancy that we would call a chemical pregnancy and that would look like a, a kind of a heavy period. But at, at most of the time that you will get fresh red bleeding um, and again some clots and then if you're getting on towards the sort of second half of the first trimester um, or going into the second trimester then you, you will pass your baby you will see um, large clots and you will see um, you know pregnancy tissue um, you may not recognize the tissue as looking like a baby if it's kind of earlier on but you will see those those clots and, and larger pieces that you do pass yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting. I was just remembering that my my uh, my sixteen week miscarriage, I had no blood at all um, until after the baby was passed, which is very very odd. I, wow. I maybe I don't know. Is it Kate? <laughs> um, no, I think during the second trimester, you know, it is is different. I think the bleeding right. is more associated right. with early miscarriages, and that's an obvious sign. But okay. yeah, in the second trimester, you, you go through labour and you might deliver your baby and then have some blood afterwards. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, see that. Yeah. And of course, the other thing I know we're going to come on to, but um, with my later miscarriages, well, after my first miscarriage, I had, I, I was, um, I, I did have wonderful support, but unfortunately, the kind of aftercare was non-existent, and nobody told me that my milk would come in. So I, I literally had no idea at all what was happening to my body. But, but of course, you know, I, I just was suddenly full of milk, um, and without any kind of warning, that was that was a really distressing thing to go to. I just feel like every time I've had a pregnancy, they just get bigger and then they just stay. But where does the milk go? It dries up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, some women will leak. Um, and if you are leaking, then don't encourage the supply. So don't try and sort of squeeze it out in any way because it will then encourage your, your body to make more. So, um, yeah, no, if you do notice that you are producing breast milk, um, do have a chat with a healthcare professional because there is medication that you can take to stop the um, production of milk. I write about in, the, in my book actually of a of a couple who go to relate loss, and when um, when her milk comes in, she she decides to to pump and to keep her milk going, and um, actually she's not alone because the, the, I know of other women who've done this, and and for some women. Um, uh, that it depends on the milk bank that you might be able to to donate after loss and that does happen after women have stillbirth or have been of a late loss and for the woman that I wrote about 
it was actually really um, just a, a, a really important part of her her morning um, to keep a link with her with her baby going for a while, and she just pumped for a couple of months, and she she kept the milk um, and froze it, and then when at a later stage she she sort of performed a ritual with it with the ashes of her baby. So when I had my milk come in, um, I poked my boobs because they were so painful and of course I had no idea that I was actually making more milk and doing it and until my husband kind of called up and I he bound my breast to make the milk go away and so that that kind of problem went away but I you know I, I'll never know because it happened 18 years ago but if, if someone had told me you know what if you want to keep the milk going and pump it um, I might well have taken that that offer up I would have you know taken that advice up um, because it as I say for like a for this woman I wrote about, it, it provided a really valuable link, but also it's, um, and this is very, very personal to me. So I own this as my own story, but when you have a pregnancy loss, most women I talk to feel a tremendous failure, whether, whether you like it or not, you can have a hundred people telling you you've done nothing wrong, but it just happens. And I certainly was, was one of those women. I thought my body had really failed me. But when my milk came in, there was a bit of me thinking that my body hasn't failed. It's, you know, it can produce milk. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, communicating with the local milk bank if you want to donate it. Um, you know, that you're absolutely right. Some women find that quite therapeutic and quite, a, you know, helpful thing to do in their grieving process. Um, but yeah, no, it, it definitely really interesting point. After a miscarriage, when the baby's not there anymore, how do you get your figure back to a place where you're not seeing a empty bump it can take a little bit of time obviously if it was earlier on and the bump was smaller it happens quicker if it's later on then um you know it can take time with regards to exercises or food or diet or anything like that i would just be careful you know when it comes to exercise that your um your body produces a hormone which means your ligaments a bit softer and stretchier in pregnancy and so it can take time for that to go down to a pre-pregnancy level so if you were to start exercising that time and that hormone level was still a bit raised um, then um, you know you just need to give your, your body physically a little bit of a break and not to push yourself too much it also depends on what you were doing before pregnancy as well you know if, if you were very fit you were a bit of a gym bunny you ran marathons um then getting back into exercise would feel really natural for somebody. I think it's about knowing yourself, knowing your body, listening to your body. What I do know is that going back to this point about it being incredibly common for women to feel a, a tremendous dip in self-worth mm. and a sense of, of guilt and blame and failure. These are really, really commonly um, held held feelings and experiences that that can become a kind of filter through which we experience our embodiment and ourselves in the world so what i'm saying in a roundabout way is that we can feel that our body is sort of uglier or you know you don't you don't like your body as much you're not saying that rachel but that quite often happens but that is that that can often be just part and parcel of of the um of the kind of emotional fallout really um, you know, of course, bodies do change. I'm not, I'm not challenging that, but I, I'm just saying being really extra kind to yourself and just let yourself off the hook a bit and realise that you're likely to be, be being quite tough on your, on yourself full stop, including your body. You know, pe- pe- women often sort of say that, they, you know, to me anyway, that they kind of don't even want to look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so yeah of course the body does change but there is that that sort of psychological piece that needs a piece of um compassion for too so then that's going to lead me on to um to a question when can you have sex after miscarriage and especially if you are in this place of not particularly maybe liking what your body's done to you yeah i think sort of talking you know scientifically or, or medically or what what symptoms um you know essentially we say that you know waiting until your bleeding has stopped um because if you're having intercourse whilst you're still bleeding then there is a risk of infection so we would suggest to wait until that um bleeding has stopped and for some women after their bleeding has stopped they still get some ongoing kind of heavy discharge as well um so i would just suggest to wait until that has settled down um which means that you know everything has closed the cervix is completely closed um and uterus is contracted back down and so that really then um the risk of infection is really has come down once that's happened so when the bleeding has stopped really and you're not in any pain um and, and you feel physically ready to have sex then um you know that's when from that point of view that you can go for it and have sex what i would say is that um it is possible to conceive or become pregnant again before you experience your first period um for some women they that that's what they want to happen if they have a miscarriage from a kind of medical point of view also thinking about um you know contraception or being aware that that pregnancy can happen before the period uh happens again there's a difference here, isn't there, between kind of having sex and trying to conceive again. Um, it's actually quite interesting that, you know, in my day, the advice has changed. You know, when I had my first miscarriage, I was told to wait um, you know, at least three months before trying again. And whereas now the, the advice is very much sort of crack on when it's, when you know, when you feel comfortable and the bleeding has stopped. And, and it's just really, really, I think, so important for you to, for you to decide when it's right. Because one thing we that also is very common that you know there are so many kind of myths and taboos around miscarriage but what quite often happens is that couples are encouraged to just crack on and get pregnant as soon as possible i certainly went through that um until i had my fourth miscarriage and everybody thought i was deranged to try and want to try again um but and i don't know whether you've had that rachel but quite a lot of people sort of there's a sort of cultural swell to um to, to sort of hurry up a bit because you're not allowed to grieve and you're not allowed to take your time grieving because it's not a proper grief etc and I you know I would just sort of flag that up as a you know you've got to find the time is right for you um quite often I, I find myself sort of supporting people to be are you really sure you're ready and, and sometimes they're not I'm guessing the kind of um the, the medical advice kit would be different if you've had an ectopic pregnancy or a, or a late pregnancy or a motor pregnancy yeah no absolutely i think if if you've had medication for example if you've had an ectopic pregnancy um then yeah they do suggest that you wait several months before trying again again with a molar pregnancy then they may you need, may need to wait till some um test results come back and give you the all clear um before trying again so yeah no sorry that advice was kind of uh, for an, an early miscarriage but yeah if, if you've had any other type of loss then I would seek guidance from um, the doctors or the healthcare professionals who are looking after you um, just to see what the advice is about trying again. So if we're in this place of like it is fluid and 
for early pregnancy, obviously for when you've got tests and studies, you'll be with um, your, the health professionals to advise in case by case. But when you're in that kind of world, when you haven't had the three in a row that you have to have at the moment, um, yeah. when would you know a miscarriage is complete? What does that feel like? Um, sometimes it's not always obvious, to be honest with you. Um, generally, the um, early pregnancy unit will advise a woman to take a pregnancy test a couple of weeks after the bleeding has started. Um, and if that ne- uh, pregnancy test comes back as negative, that means that the pregnancy hormone levels, the HCG level, has come down to pre-pregnancy level. Now, if that pregnant that hormone level the hcg level is still raised and ongoing it can not always but it can indicate that there's part of the pregnancy or part of the baby is still inside the uterus um and um you know if it's a little bit sometimes a woman may pass that with with her period so if her hormone levels come down enough that her period and her cycle starts up again then it might just be that that woman experiences a slightly heavier um, period the first one after she has her miscarriage Um, unfortunately uh, for some women they may have their miscarriage but um, part of the pregnancy part of the baby part of the tissue is left behind Um, and you know it then comes down to choice some women feel that they want that removed straight away um, and either you can try a medical route which is taking medication to try and pass the pregnancy if not then it might be surgery so like a dnc um, which is basically to take that um, part of the pregnancy out of the woman's body others may just leave it a little bit longer and want to see if their body pa- um, passes it sort of naturally um, as long as um, there's no signs of infection, so for example, um, no raised temperature, um, no ongoing pain, the woman feels well, physically well, um, not feeling dizzy or lightheaded or feeling unwell, um, then you know you can actually leave that to go on for quite a while. But uh, on the emotional side of that, some women find that you know that, that they don't want that medical intervention, and others just want it physically over as soon as possible so that they can start grieving so again it's quite personal as to how that's managed what's the thing that you you most wish that people knew that you see i would want most women to know is unfortunately you know miscarriage is common unfortunately you know about one in four pregnancies do end in loss and it's not the fault of the women it's um most miscarriages happen um, due to the baby not quite developing properly from the moment of conception. Um, we also don't know why a lot of miscarriages happen. Um, and to not feel alone, because you will know someone else who's experienced a miscarriage, even though they haven't said it, there will be someone around you that will have to. Um, so don't feel alone. There is help. There is support. Um, and and do do reach out as much as you feel comfortably to do so. And, and go back to where we started. It might mean being a squeaky wheel and, and not taking <laughs> no for an answer. Um, and you know, I would reiterate the point about our, our wisdom of our bodies. You know, I, I just we we've got it, and and that should lead the way. The difficulty of exploring our bodies in miscarriage is that I can end up down rabbit holes I don't need to be down. There's a thought I've had surrounding this topic of bodies, our bodies as species of human. 
I was watching a David Attenborough programme about biodiversity the other day. You might have seen it. During the show, the discussions moved on to historic changes to the environment that, according to professionals, could be to blame for infertility in killer whales off the west coast of Scotland. Now, this got me thinking about us as a species. If it's one in four pregnancies that end in loss, are there bigger issues at hand? And should I be trying for a baby if nature is telling me no? Is that just being selfish? When there are children in need of loving homes and environmental issues of humans overpopulation, does it make me a bad person to want to add a child to this already increasing numbers of humans on this earth? If our bodies are made up of our environment, and if there's historic reasons for infertility in killer whales, could this be the same for me? Is that why my womb doesn't work? I find when I'm down paths like this, I need to stop and just turn right back around. Some of these thoughts are not helpful. And if left too long, they may be damaging my mental health. This episode was recorded and produced by me in my duvet den. The music is Small Bump by Ed Sheeran. Thank you to Julia Bueno and Kate Marsh from Tommy's for joining me on this episode. If you're going through it right now and you need some support, there's links to help available on the website tryingagainpodcast.com. If you've liked this episode, please share it and leave a review on your podcast app so that others can find it. And if you haven't already, remember to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can wrap your fingers